installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. We're approaching a special centennial anniversary in Canada, the opening of the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory on Vancouver Island, just north of Victoria on Saanich Road, on June 11, 1918. The man behind this feat was a remarkable explorer by the name of John Stanley Plaskett. And here to talk about him is Peter Broughton, who's just published Northern Star, J.S. Plaskett, with the University of Toronto Press. Peter, welcome to the studio. Thank you. I'm very grateful for this opportunity to discuss a stellar Canadian. Oh, a stellar Canadian. Well said. John Plaskett was completely unknown to me until I ran across it in the publisher's catalog. And I'll admit it, I'm not captivated by stars, and that's a character flaw I readily admit to. But your book is utterly fascinating, and of course the Champlain Society has always been devoted to explorers of all kinds. Tell me what makes Plaskett so important to the Canadian experience. Well, this is a great place to start. I think just about everyone would agree that science and technology are vital parts of our lives, but we seldom give a moment's thought to its origins. A century ago, our country was still a colony in many ways, including uh, the sciences as well as the arts. Plaskett was one of the very few Canadians to bring Canada to international attention as a nation where important research was being done. It's well known that in the arts, Canada was truly a backwater until the 20th century, and it's just as true in the sciences, with the notable exception, perhaps, of the Geological Survey of Canada, Yes, uh, first directed by William Logan. What I find so striking, or even unfair, is that we, as civilized Canadians, are expected to know about the Group of Seven, or... Lucy Maud Montgomery, who flourished at the same time as yes. Plaskett, but virtually no one pays attention to people like Plaskett and his contemporaries. Now, this man was born in 1865. Mm -hmm. he, he came to this, this is, I think, what makes the story all the more remarkable, is that he came to astrophysics very late in life. How did that happen? Well, he, indeed, he was a late bloomer in that respect, uh, but not only that, he never studied astronomy or astrophysics. <laughs> like many of his Victorian generation, he grew up on a farm as a member of a very large family. Hard work, religious faith, too much to drink. They were all characteristics of his time and family. Youngsters of his age, when they went to school, if they wanted to get into high school, they had to write entrance exams, and only about half the kids actually even made it to high school. But he's a tinkerer. He's the yeah. guy who's oh, good with oh his hands. Oh, yes. As a child, he, uh, he loved um, making things and experimenting. When he was 14, he made an electrical machine. You may be able to picture that. It's sort of a, two big round glass discs, and you turn a crank, and the discs go in opposite directions, and then a spark jumps across the electrodes. He makes a living doing this kind of stuff. He's hired by an American company to, well, to work in, 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 in electricity. Eventually, he yes. does, yes. Uh, Without a university education. I mean, he's just... He, right. He, he, well, his father died on his 16th birthday, and he had to take over the farm for a while. Right. He didn't like that, but he... Uh, so he went to uh, apprentice at a local foundry in Woodstock. And I think he did some electrical work there, but he certainly learned the mechanical trades. And then 
as you say, he got the chance to go to the Edison Company in the States for a while and then came back to Edison of Canada. He, he's, he's spotted by a University of Toronto prof. Yes. And that's how he makes his way here. And right. It's all pure luck and circumstance, but one of the physics professors at U of T, whose uncle was actually the president of the university, <clears throat> but himself a former physics professor, they were coming to the realization that laboratory work was essential in the education of young scientists. They needed somebody to set up experiments and demonstrations. And he's and a jack-of-all-trades who can do exactly. all Exactly. He was the perfect person for the job. He's quite captivated by photography, you yes, write in your book. That's true. That never entered, well, up to this point in his life, it never entered the professional side of his work. But he loved photography, not only as a sort of artistic medium, he enjoyed taking scenery shots and so on, but he, he always wanted to experiment with different emulsions and to see what could make the picture more appealing. You say in your book that Plaskett actually might have been the first man in Canada to uh, produce a color photo. Yes, that's according so, to again, Colton. That's... He's, a, he's a remarkable man in that he has no formal education. He's a, he has a remarkable ability to absorb knowledge. He's obviously very bright. Um, so we would call him a mature student. He creates all these experiments for students, and he realizes, I can do this. Um, and so he works towards his own Bachelor of Arts at U of T. Right. He always, uh, well, after he started at U of T, it wasn't long before he got married and started to raise a family. But of course. his wife encouraged him, and he always gave her a great deal of credit for um, telling him he should pursue his, well, first he had to complete his high school education. Right. And then go on, and all the while that he was pursuing his studies, he was still continuing his work. Now, his life takes another turn uh, when he joins the Public Service of Canada. What happens then? What, 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 this is 1905? Well, 1903. 1903? Yes. What happened? What brings him to the government of Canada? Well, uh, again, it was just pure luck, and actually it was the same person that brought him to U of T in the first place. He was growing dissatisfied at U of T, with his mechanical work. Some people thought he would have made a great professor, which he probably would, but yes. uh, other people and were not so crazy about the idea. So he was beginning to wonder where else he could go. It happened that the Dominion Observatory um, was in its planning stages. It was one of Laurier's ideas to make Ottawa truly great capital with the image of the capital of a nation instead of just the little hick down on the Rideau. This is a reality we often forget about about Laurier, that he had great ambitions for the city of Ottawa. He did. And, and he wanted to have an observatory in Ottawa? Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the reasons was that Laurier's father and grandfather, I think, were both land surveyors. Yes, they were. And that was very... It ran in the family, and astronomy was at the foundation of surveying. So, right. So he joins the um, the the public service in Canada, and again, following your book, he gets involved in this new idea of creating an observatory. But the the original intention was to do it at the experimental farm, but we wind up in Victoria in 1918. Now, what exactly happens in those 15 years? Okay, the National Observatory in Ottawa wasn't really 
well, it certainly wasn't comparable to uh, the major observatories on the west coast of the United States. So when Plaskett went in 1910 to this international meeting, he saw what the Mount Wilson Observatory was like. And in particular, he saw this huge reflecting telescope uh, that was uh, four times in diameter and therefore 16 times as powerful in light gathering capacity as his instrument was in Ottawa. <laughs> and So you have telescope envy. Yes, right. <laughs> but he'd also come, to the, the research he was doing in Ottawa uh, had really come up against a, a ceiling. Could, he couldn't do more. So he convinces the government of Canada to buy a bigger telescope? Absolutely. Remarkable. Yes, and he was, uh, he was quite a lobbyist. <clears throat> he, he thought of every conceivable way that he could. His colleagues, uh, who we now had in the United States and Europe, he got them to write letters. He went to the Royal Society of Canada, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. He lobbied members of Parliament, did everything. And eventually, in 1913, convinced the Borden government that, yes, Canada needed a big facility like this in order to be on the world stage. And is that when Victoria was chosen as a site? Uh, well, not immediately. In fact, it was Plaskett's idea that the government would never agree to anything that was outside uh, Ottawa. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and his boss, W.F. King, agreed with him. But uh, others persuaded him and the authorities that uh, Ottawa was a poor site for a big observatory. So uh, he sent his assistant, Harper, out across the country to test various sites. And uh, after a lot of work decided on Victoria. Now tell us about this new telescope. So if it's going to beat an American telescope, it's going to have to be some kind of big. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, it, well, the one that I spoke of earlier that was on Mount Wilson and was already operating, uh, if I can use old dimensions, 60 inches in diameter, and uh, Plaskett originally thought, well, maybe we'll try to equal that in Canada, but we'll also ask for estimates on the cost of a 72-inch telescope. And it turned out that the costs were not hugely different. And um, so he, he thought, well, we'll go for the 72, and the, the government of Canada agreed. And that's how it came about that it was the for a short while, the largest operating telescope in the world. Amazing. And was this telescope made in Canada? No. <laughs> no who, make, no. who can make these things? Yeah, exactly. So uh, it was the two, two makers in the States, Brashier and Company in Pittsburgh, did the optics, and uh, a firm in Cleveland, Warner and Swayze, did all the mechanical work. So this material is transported to Victoria, and finally in, um, in June of 1918, the whole mechanism is operational. And this is really where Plaskett's career takes off. As, as an intellectual, as an astrophysicist, mm -hmm. this seems to be the breakthrough. Oh, yes. He, he couldn't have uh, succeeded in his work without a major telescope. His major accomplishment was getting the <laughs> government of Canada to fund the telescope. What are his discoveries in the 1920s? Well, 
the one that brought him the great attention, and especially among the public, was the discovery of a very massive pair of stars that soon became known and are still known as Plaskett's stars. For a long, long time, even after his death, they were the most massive stars known. But remember, that only came about because he had initiated a survey of uh, all the stars that his telescope could reach and that weren't already being done by Mount Wilson or some other major observatory. So he took advantage of this massive telescope. He had a he had a deeper vision into the space. Is yes, that what happened? Yes, he could see further. He and, could see uh, further. But he also, as I say, you know, he, nobody knows where to look for the most massive star. So he had this huge, massive survey that he could go through and see. Uh huh. Did his facility with photography help him there? Um. Oh, I would say initially it helped him when he was yeah. back in Ottawa, but by this time uh, he just used commercially available plates. And He died in 1941. He was 76 years old at that point. Um, but it strikes me as though he should be better remembered. I, you know, again, I, I did not know Plaskett before I read your book. Um, what should he be remembered for at the end of the day? Well, I think... Canadians certainly should remember him as the man who put the country on the international stage, uh, scientifically speaking. He was he was recognized for his for his research. Oh, absolutely. He by the, by the time he retired, or anyway, by the time he died, he had five honorary degrees. He had medals from the oldest uh, scientific societies in the world. He was a member of the British Empire. He had won the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society in London. He gave an invited lecture, the Halley Lecture in Oxford University. Um, Not bad for a farming kid from Woodstock. Eh? Uh, exactly, as I like to say, from Oxford County to Oxford University. Oh, well said indeed. Now, Peter, I want to talk about you for a second. Um, this is a remarkable accomplishment, publishing a, a big scholarly book like this. What, what, made, what made you interested in Plaskett? Well, my major subject at university was astronomy, uh, which I guess I could say like Plaskett, I never studied beyond my bachelor's degree. But I continued my interest in astronomy and joined the Astronomical Society, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada um, as an undergraduate and became very active in the society. And then uh, in 1988, I think it was, the, uh, the decision was made to honor Plaskett with a medal given to the best, the writer of the best PhD thesis in uh, astronomy or astrophysics in the last two years. So that medal was instituted in 1988 and the journal of the Astronomical Society we decided we should have a special issue taking note of this new medal and various aspects of Plaskett's life. But you dedicated your life to teaching high school math. True. And you decided suddenly to write a, a massive scholarly tome on, <laughs> well, on J.S. Plaskett? <laughs> <laughs> All along during my career as a teacher and subsequently in retirement, I have been writing about the history of astronomy, particularly in Canada. And so this is just another step in that 
long phase. Long journey. Well, a successful one. Thank you, Peter, for giving us the opportunity to discover John Plaskett. That was uh, Peter Broughton, author of Northern Star, A Life of John Stanley Plaskett. The book is published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publication, its blog, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place uh, to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. The Champlain Society is entirely voluntary, but money is always needed to keep the lights on. My name is Patrice Dutin. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. It was recorded on March 16th, 2018, and it was produced by Sumit Dami and Pernia Jamshed. Thank you, everybody, and I'll see you next time.